Hello, and welcome to Barbarians at the Gate podcast. My name is Jeremiah Jenny, and I'm here with my co-host, David Moser, calling in from Oklahoma. Hi, Jeremiah. I'm here, uh, yeah, I'm in Oklahoma City, but our fearless leader, Trump, is going to be giving a big rally, I think, this Saturday in, Tul- in Tulsa. So it's one time I'm sort of glad to be in quarantine, actually. And we're really pleased today to be joined by James Carter. He's a professor at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, and he's teaching and researches late imperial and modern China. He earned his PhD uh, under uh, Jonathan Spence and is the author of two books, Heart of Buddha, Heart of China, The Life of Tan Xu, a 20th century monk, and Creating a Chinese Harbin, Nationalism in an International City, 1916 to 1932. And he has a great new book out this just this week called Champions Day, and it takes a look at the city of Shanghai from the perspective of the racetrack, one of the most important sites in colonial Shanghai. And so thank you so much for joining us, Jay. How are you doing? Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm, I'm doing all right, all things considered, as, as we have to qualify everything these days. But here in New Jersey, things are uh, relatively calm. So happy to, happy to be joining you from uh, in, in Beijing and Oklahoma. So I think this may be the most diverse uh, geographical Zoom meeting that I've been on. Signing in from many points of longitude. Right. Okay, well, let's just dive in. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. So, Jay, I, I remember uh, one evening a few years ago, a couple years ago, maybe when you were telling me about the this project, and I was intrigued um, by the, the idea of it, of the narrative. Um, having read through it, I sort of felt like I was watching Pulp Fiction, um, the way that all the narrative threads kind of weave in and out, uh, center, centering on uh, one unified you know, narrative. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the history of this pro- project? Uh, it's the story of Shanghai's racing world, but it's also the story of the city and the community. What was it about the racetrack and the Champions Cup that inspired you to make it the center of your book and this particular narrative structure as a, as a history book? Well, I, I appreciate the the praise. Um, so I worked really hard on the narrative structure, and it changed a whole bunch as as things were going. And and so asking about its origins is really a good way to get into the book and and the project and its significance. So for one thing, I have kind of realized as I've as I've been writing that what really interests me and what my focus has been is on kind of China's relations with the West. So when I was writing about Harbin, it was about a kind of a colony that had been taken over. Uh, by the Chinese government after the Russian Revolution and the way that that uh, it became into became a Chinese city. And then with Tan Shu, the monk that that Jeremiah mentioned, he was traveling around founding temples that were in opposition to Western colonialism. So he founded a temple in Harbin, he founded a temple in Qingdao, uh, and in some other other places as well. So as I discovered that was sort of the the tack I was taking, I wanted to find another place I could get into that. And in addition, I wanted to find someplace easier to work than Harbin, which was really um, not very welcoming to researchers, although I have great friends there. Um, so Shanghai seemed the natural place to go. And so looking at the, a place where foreigners and Chinese interacted, you can't get a more dynamic location than Shanghai. And then at the center of Shanghai is this racetrack. And uh, what I found as I got into the story is that I thought a good way to tell it would be to use a single day. And in fact, at the origins of the, of the book, or the origins of the research for the book, uh, I was going to make it much more 
much denser than that. So really the book was going to begin at dawn. It was going to end at maybe midnight or maybe at sundown, but it was really just going to be the entire book would be just one day. As you've seen, the book is, has now delved back into the past. And so the, the last section of the book is really focusing on that one day, but there's a lot more background. So the, I still like that structure because I thought it gave a way to bring in, as you were saying, David, and I hope it's been successful to bring in a whole bunch of different stories and then you take those different stories, kind of wrap them all up into a single cable that can tell, uh, tell one, one story and use that one story with its all component parts to get at what was the nature of the relationship between, between China and the West at this particular moment. Now, Shanghai is a really interesting city, too, because it's, it's always held up as this example of the, you know, the treaty port. Now, obviously, there were many ports that qualified as treaty ports and many concession areas in China in the 19th and early 20th century. Uh, but Shanghai, see, you know, Shanghai, for many reasons, seems to be the one that everyone you know, thinks of as the sort of the, the example of what one of these concessions you know, could be was. The, one of the things I think about this is you know, we, we always try to find a way to try to characterize what was this relationship between the West and China in this period, particularly as it relates to these treaty ports, to these concession areas. And there's the old chestnut, the, the one that you see a lot in Chinese texts. You know, this is an era of semi-feudal, semi-colonialism. And this idea of semi-colonialism, you know, for me, it's always been, I, you know, I understand the logic behind it, but it's always been a little bit jarring. And in your book, you describe Shanghai um, after Isabella Jackson as an example of transnational colonialism. Can you tell me a little bit more, tell us a little bit more about what that means and how does that term help us understand Shanghai in this era in a way that maybe the old semi-colonialism doesn't quite capture? Yeah, that's a great, a great question. And I'm glad that you, you picked up on that phrase because I think um, yeah, Isabel Jackson, who's an historian in, in Ireland right now, um, who studied under Robert Bickers, who's, who's really one of the, one of the, the premier historians of, of, of Britain and China, um, but her formulation, this notion of international colonialism. So what she sees as being important about it is that it wasn't a colony of any one nation. Instead, it was colonized in effect by a whole bunch of different nations that were competing with one another. And because they were competing with one another, no single one of them was able to get the kind of dominance that they needed in order to enforce a colonial regime. And so uh, I think the notion of international colonialism helps to explain why colonialism in Shanghai uh, had a kind of cosmopolitan flavor to it, an international flavor to it, um, but it wasn't because people were necessarily more progressive in their in their views or that they were more enlightened about how they were going to govern, is that they were limited in what they could accomplish because they were having to negotiate with the other colonial powers or semi-colonial powers or quasi-colonial powers, but they're having to negotiate with, if you were British, you had to negotiate with Americans and with French and with Germans and with Japanese and all of this in the context of being surrounded by China. So the international colonialism was a way of getting at this, this notion of uh, it wasn't quite fully colonial, and yet it sure you know, looked and quacked and walked and smelled like colonialism. So how did it come out differently? Uh, the, the book uh, has lots of great quotes. You could, we could almost spend the whole podcast just pulling quotes out and, and, uh, and, and having you discuss them. Uh, but I, I like uh, the sentence, the, the, the characterization in your book that, uh, that, Shanghai, that the Shanghai solution was cosmopolitan, racist, pragmatic, cooperative, and cynical. And in another section, you compare Shanghai with the movie detective Charlie Chan, 
and some of the younger listeners won't know who that is, they should get on YouTube and all the movies are there. It's probably good to, to watch it. Um, and I remember watching those movies. That was kind of the first, uh, my first impressions of China was through those movies, actually. And when I went to Shanghai, I sort of realized, uh, oh, this is, <laughs> this is closer to the Charlie Chan uh, stereotype than some other places in China. But you talk about the Charlie Chan analogy as being both a global brand full of stereotypes and contradictions with surprising substance and importance, but ultimately operating according to Western rules and standards. And with all of the uh, the issues of racism in the news today, I mean, this book seems very interesting because there's a lot of parallels to what's happening now. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that aspect of, of, the, of, of Shanghai? Um, sure. And, you know, the, the book that people should turn to for Charlie Chan is a book by uh, Yuntu Huang um, on Charlie Chan that came out a couple of years ago uh, and goes into it in a lot of depth. I relied on that for kind of getting into the, to the Charlie Chan story. And the reason Charlie Chan came up in this book was not because I felt he was the essential guide to things Shanghai, but because one of the Charlie Chan movies, Murder Over New York, was opening on Champions Day. So on that last section of the book, when I go through hour by hour, what was happening around the city, one of the things that was happening was this Charlie Chan opening was going on. And, and Charlie Chan is, is both, uh, you know, horrifying. I mean, you've got Warner Oland and, and Sidney Toller, depending on the year, dressed up in yellow face. And, and I mean, it's, it's appalling. On the other hand, uh, Charlie Chan is always the smartest person in the room. He's the one who solves the crime in the end. He's the one who figures it out. But on the third hand, um, you know, he talks in this kind of stilted English and um, everyone calls him Charlie. And even though he addresses everybody else by their formal title. So I mean, my description was meant to get at the idea that, you know, Charlie Chan isn't simply a caricature. He's got a lot of depth to him. But at the end, he is completely controlled by, by the Westerners. He's controlled by not being white. Um, and I think that that's important to keep in mind in Shanghai. If, if we dismiss Shanghai in the way that the PRC, sometime, especially prior to the opening, uh, perform an opening, talking about, about Shanghai as being you know, a den of imperialism and feudalism, if you look at it that way, I think it limits a lot of the real sort of multicultural cosmopolitan aspects of, of the city that made it something unique, not simply colonial and not simply oppressive. At the same time, if you try to make the argument that, oh, Shanghai was this, this magical fusion of West and East where everybody, everybody got along and we found a, a future that could be a model for how we're all going to be, well, not so much. I mean, most of Shanghai's, pop, even in the international settlement, most of Shanghai's population was Chinese. And by most, I mean, well over 90%. Um, and while there are a lot of those people who were well off and even wealthy, there were many more who were not those things. Um, so there's no question that it was a racist society. There's no question that it was uh, formed according to the rules that were developed by Westerners. At the same time, there was a substance there that I don't think you can simply dismiss it as being um, racist or, uh, or oppressive. And so I, I think always trying to find some lessons that you can take for the present and the future. You know, I, I, I think that there's a way that we can look at Shanghai from that what's called the golden age and even calling it the golden age gets a little uncomfortable because was it a golden age when it was a, you know, a colonial society, but even looking at Shanghai when it had so many aspects that we, we want to hold on to some of them. We want to hold on to the international and cosmopolitan nature, but we want to get rid of the racism and the colonialism. So I like to think that we can look to the past and not try to recreate something that was there before, but maybe learn from 
what was good about it and what was bad about it and try to move forward. And that message right now is really valuable when we live in a time of, of xenophobia and racism all, all around the world, China and, and the West. Yeah, you, you juggle all these aspects very well in the book. I, I think uh, it, it's very interesting. Of course, the cast of characters is, is, is really at the heart of the book. And uh, we know Shanghai is a very colorful place. And some of the people I was familiar with, pe- people like Du Yuesheng and Big Ears Du and all these uh, uh, characters that you learn about when you go to the concessions. But some of them I wasn't familiar with. Um, so, so first of all, uh, who was your favorite or, or who, which uh, character did you find to be most compelling uh, or maybe more representative of this era? And um, are, are there any individuals you highlighted who might otherwise not get the attention they deserve in the English language scholarship on Shanghai? Because I certainly wasn't aware of some of them. Well, I, I don't know about deserves. I mean, my, one of my quotes from one of my favorite movies, uh, Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven, he says, deserves got nothing to do with it. <laughs> um, so I don't know I don't know if they deserve to have more attention. But in terms of favorites, so kind of the, the, the people who are in many ways at the center of the story are, are uh, Arthur Henchman and Cornell Franklin. And Cornell Franklin, because he's American, um, I think gets even more, a little more attention. He's a, you know, he's a remarkable figure. Um, I think he comes from he comes from Mississippi. He moves to Hawaii and then on to Shanghai. And I think one of the things in all those places is they're all they're all structured around a pretty strict racial hierarchy. Like moving mm-hmm. from from Mississippi in the around the turn of the century uh, and then on to Hawaii, which is also really a colonial society, it's before it's a state, and then on to Shanghai. His little bit of trivia is that his uh, wife leaves him for William Faulkner, which which doesn't happen <laughs> to that many people. Um, so Cornell Franklin is a is a really interesting figure. I don't know if I don't know if he's admirable. I mean, he is kind of remarkable, and this may come up later in the conversation because he's the person who tries to go back after the war, after um, the Japanese are gone, and he wants to try to get old Shanghai back, and he doesn't really succeed. But I think that in terms of the 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 person I, I think I admired the most or maybe had the most sympathy for was probably the architect, uh, Dong Dayo, or, or Dayu Dun, as he uh, has anglicized his name. So he was, uh, uh, he was educated. He went to Tsinghua. He was educated also in Rome, spent time in Rome as a child, educated in Tsinghua. He was Chinese, um, studied architecture in Minnesota and then in New York, and then goes back to design what becomes the new Shanghai city center up in, in Jiangwan, so in the north of uh, the north of the inter- north of the international settlement. He has a bold vision for what China is going to be. I mean, he has a bold vision that does not include recreating architectural tropes from the past. He sees making something new and making a new center for Shanghai that's going to reclaim the city from the colonial powers. And there are already talks. I hadn't really thought about this before I was doing this research. They were already talking about reclaiming the settlements um, from the foreign powers in the in the 30s. They were talking about this. Uh, it all went sideways when the Japanese invaded, but Dong Dayo stays there. He's at the racetrack. Um, he's living a very cosmopolitan life, and his he's got his wire-rimmed glasses, and his he's got terrific suits and and a, a, a great style. But he's one of the people who stays. He's one of the only people in the book who stays after the end of the war, after the revolution. He stays in China um, and continues to live and work as an architect in in the People's Republic, uh, mm. and that. You know, he suffers quite a bit in the Cultural Revolution, and uh, the, the last years of his life aren't aren't really positive ones. Um, but he's a, a character I have a lot of sympathy for because you see him going from that kind of pre-war, you know, twenties and thirties, coming into this international 
environment of Shanghai, goes through the trauma of war and revolution and stays and experiences what, what comes out on the other side. So he's, he's one of the figures who I found to be really remarkable. But there are plenty more. I can, I can give more examples. I don't know if, how much time you want to spend on, on characters. One of the characters I, I liked was, um, is it David Sassoon, right? Who, he, uh, he was involved in the racing. This is the younger David Sassoon, I guess. Is that right, Jay? Yeah, there's, there's a, there are several different David Sassoons. But yes, he's, he's, the, he's older by the end of, I mean, he dies later in the book, but he's younger than the kind of the patriarch of the family, yes. And he, uh, when, he, when he joins up with the races, he, everyone kind of despairs because he simply just buys all of his champion horses and uses his money to, to, it just makes me think like, you know, 100 years ago, there was a need for salary cap in sports. Yeah, he, he, is, he plays kind of the George Steinbrenner role in, uh, in the Shanghai Race Club. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about racing because it is such an indelible part of the foreign presence in China. And, you know, it's not even historical. You think about what the races being open means for Hong Kong today. But also in the history of Beijing, you know, the uh, Palmachang, the, the, the racetrack that was located west of the city here, was a fixture in the social calendar of so many people who were in the international community here. And it, it was also, it symbolized their presence. It was one of the first things that the boxers in 1900 burned down. And it was one of the first things the foreign community rebuilt after that war was over. And, you know, the fascination with these races, I, I, I'm just speaking a little bit, you know, I was trying, when I'm reading this book, I'm thinking, okay, it's Shanghai, you know, how does it compare to Beijing? And I'm thinking how much the fascination with races was something that linked the two kind of foreign communities in these cities. I mean, I just, uh, I just finished a project where I was looking at uh, Harold Acton, who was an author living in Beijing in the 1930s, and his, fa his famous novel, uh, peonies and ponies. And in that book, ponies or the love of ponies is uh, a code, a metaphor for a particular species of foreigner, you know, who is who lives in Beijing in the 1930s. And I'm just curious, you know, what is it about this activity? What is it about race courses that made it such an important part of the culture of colonialism in China and it's such an important symbol for the, for people about the colonial presence? Uh, in China at the time, I think to some extent it's because it's it's quintessentially British, um, and so in a lot of these places where it were the colonial, if colonialism in in China is defined by Britain, then I think that the the horse races kind of come to represent that. And then of course there are many other countries that were that were practicing colonial or semi-colonial or internationally colonial, however you want to phrase it. Um, nonetheless, I think that uh, European colonialism colonialism in China came to be kind of defined by uh, a British approach. Um, and so I think that that certainly played a role in Shanghai early on. Um, that was, there was really an attempt to recreate British uh, leisure sporting life in China. And so I think that played a big role. And little did I know at the time, but when I was researching uh, Harbin in the, you know, in the nineties, um, there was a race course in Harbin also. And one of the things that the, the Japanese did when they invaded, when they established, a, when they came in to establish Manchukuo, um, is they, you know, they raised the Japanese flag at the race course. I mean, that was a really symbolic gesture, which just kind of underlines your question. It's why was this such an important symbol? I think in addition to just kind of being an example of, British sporting life, which was kind of wrapped up in this kind of masculine colonialism that was being exported around, around the world or imposed around the world. Um, I also just think physically, 
it was, it's a really overwhelming site. I mean, racetracks were big, right? I mean, they, so they took up enormous, enormous spaces in these cities. So you couldn't, um, you couldn't help but be sort of awed by them and overwhelmed by them. And it was, it was a big space. And I think that that matters physically. And we were asking earlier about the, the origins of the book. When I started looking for a project where I was going to be able to look at sort of Western and Chinese and Western interactions. And, you know, I, I kind of had a, a frustrated desire to be a sports writer once upon a time. Um, and horse racing seemed like something that could be really positive and uh, I mean, positive as a, as a project. And so I started to look at the idea of, of, of looking at horse racing in China overall. Now it turned out that it had already been done kind of, sort of, there's a book called China races by a British um, civil servant named Austin Coates. And he has a lot of great information about the racetracks that are all over. I mean, there are more than a dozen all around, all around China. Um, he also, for what it's worth, made some, I don't know if they were errors or if they were, he just had incorrect information, but that's why. So when I said, I started to look at this one day and was going to use this one day to structure the, the book, I spent about a week up at the Xu Jiahui uh, library in Shanghai, um, looking at the wrong day because Austin Coates had, um, had written that the, the last champions race was in May of 1941. And so I said, okay, and I, I figured out the day and I started looking around and what kind of pieces could I, could I figure out? And then I discovered, then as I did my research, I looked into the fall to see, okay, what, what did they say when they didn't run the champions? Like, Oh, actually they did run the champions. They ran it in November. And so that's when I made the new day of November 12th. And it turned out that was a lot better day because you wound up having not only the champions day, the last champion stakes before the Japanese invade, but you had these other two pieces that are kind of at the, my editor like to call this this triptych of these three different events. So the, the champion stakes was one, the funeral of Liza Hardoon, who is this half French, uh, half Chinese woman who was allegedly the wealthiest woman in Asia when she died, when she was buried on November 12th, 1941. And then November 12th is Sun Yat-sen's birthday. So on the other side of town where, where Dayu Dun had designed this new Shanghai center, um, that's where there was a celebration for Sun Yat-sen's birthday, which is this totally bizarre um, setting where you have a Chinese nationalist hero being celebrated by a Japanese-sponsored regime um, to try to make themselves look like Chinese patriots. So when you have the celebrations for Sun Yat-sen and the funeral for Liza Hardoon and the racetrack, you have these three different spectacles that are going on, all celebrating different aspects of colonial and semi-colonial life in Shanghai. And I think that to loop back to the question about the, the racetrack and why they were so prominent, all these three things are physical spaces and physical spectacles that I think are important. And so it's not simply that people had ideas and thought about colonialism and thought about nationalism and thought about um, business success. They had these really physical markers they could look to and that people could gather around. That uh, brings up something I was thinking about you know, when I was reading the book. So it follows along with what you were saying, that the race courses themselves, the infrastructure, I guess you could say, in modern terminology, uh, that seem to be a markers for a kind of civilizing effect or a, a sign of civilization, racetracks, and you need good trains to connect them and roads, and etc. And so, you know, it's, it's the same idea of the cities with the basketball arenas or, or foot, football uh, stadiums, high-speed rail to connect these. The, the internationalization of certain kinds of sports entertainment as a marker of civilization. If you, if you have this stuff, then your country is civilized. Although we don't use the word civilization anymore. It's more like a marker of development. Isn't, does that play into the, the, the impetus to, to build all this infrastructure built, uh, revolving around race courses? 
Yeah, for sure. And in fact, there's one passage in the book where um, there's a there's a, a, a gathering. One, one thing I haven't haven't mentioned here yet is here, there are actually three racetracks in Shanghai, right? So one is the Shanghai Race Club downtown, but there are two Chinese operated clubs in other parts of of the city. And so there is a, a gathering in in the center of the city to uh, kind of a meeting of, of Chinese and Western horse aficionados. And one of the British officials makes this uh, speech about how really all of China's problems would be solved if just you could build a racetrack in every city and a, and a railroad to link them, because that would demonstrate that they were civilized, that they were, they'd kind of overcome whatever Oriental backwardness had been restraining them. And I'm, I have no reason to think he didn't say that with a straight face. Um, so it is, it is, I think it's remarkable the parallels now with, I mean, as you said, building big arenas and football stadiums and uh, high speed rail linking them. And I think in, even in the United States, there's a, you know, this, this uh, uh, fetish of building stadiums yeah. uh, in different cities. Like your city is a, is on top. If it's got a, a top, uh, a top flight stadium, usually funded by the taxpayers, it seems. But right. That's, that's another discussion. Shanghai, this era of Shanghai, especially like, you know, Shanghai between the wars, it's an object of fascination and, and an era that, you know, as you mentioned, is very easily romanticized. You know, a lot, I, I, I personally, and I really enjoy reading, you know, some of the, the books by people like Paul French, you know, looking at like, you know, the lives of the gangsters and the demimonde of Shanghai at this time. And I think even now there's a sort of Shanghai chic that's going on a nostalgia for this period of like glitz and glamour and yet as you mentioned and as you talk about in the book it's glitz and glamour made possible by institutional institutional and systemic racism and a whole lot of colonial privilege and it's hard not to think is this romanticizing of you know this this, this world of shanghai in this era especially in the context of 2020. Is this just a little bit icky? I think icky is a really good way to put it. And it's something that I've wrestled with for a long time. I think it, it maps on to sort of the study of China in the West, um, starting back with John King Fairbank um, at Harvard in the 19, well, 40s and before, uh, before World War II and, and then immediately after World War II. So the first attempt by... Anglophones to to study and write about China was really focused on the treaty ports and focused on colonialism. And then there was a pushback to say this is a, a real misunderstanding of China because a lot was going on in the country that had nothing to do with foreigners. And so you're you're by putting on these by prioritizing what was going on in the treaty ports and what the what foreigners were doing in China, you're you're distorting the whole understanding of the country. And so then there came a wave of scholarship studying the many more parts of China that were relatively unaffected um, by by foreign influence. And then there was a a response to that, which started to acknowledge the notion that well, a lot of China was unaffected by foreigners, but but many parts were as well, and it wasn't simply about colonial oppression being enforced on Chinese and the Chinese responding to it, that there was, there was some interplay. So I certainly wrestle with, with, is it romanticizing simply by writing a book focused on the Shanghai race club? I mean, the Shanghai race club is a symbol of imperialism. That's why the place gets shut down um, after, after world war two. I think that Shanghai, as we said earlier, Shanghai represents something that is icky but it is something that's fabulous as well. 
And the question is, can we make, can we keep some of the fabulous and get rid of the ickiness? And so certainly you can't have, you can't talk about Shanghai objectively without noting that it's racist, without noting that it's colonial, without noting that these structures of oppression are hardwired into the way it's built. And I, I try to address that in the book and I, and I think that I do. But I also want to hold on to the idea that it, it wasn't simply something that was forced on the people of Shanghai from outside, that something unique was created there. And that uniqueness was something that wasn't strictly Western and wasn't strictly Chinese. It wasn't, um, it wasn't even about just Shanghai. So, something that, um, that I think is, is sometimes forgotten is that Shanghai is a city of immigrants, but most of those immigrants are from China. Right, they're from other parts of China coming into Shanghai. So Shanghai is, a, is an engine that is fueled by people coming from England and coming from America and coming from France and coming from Germany, but they're also coming from Sichuan, they're coming from Subei, they're coming from Beijing, they're coming from Shandong, they're coming from, they're coming from all around the country and, and putting down roots, well, maybe not putting down roots, but they're, but they're making a life in Shanghai. And so I really think it's important to to, yeah, acknowledge the ickiness that was there, but also not to throw out everything about Shanghai, because I, I think in today's world, we really need to hold on to the idea that internationalism can be a good thing um, and that cosmopolitanism can be a goal uh, and that it's, it certainly goes wrong a lot of the times, but it doesn't, need, that doesn't mean it has to go wrong all the time. So uh, a colleague of mine often talks about history as a hopeful exercise. So if we think of history as a hopeful exercise, then I, I need to look back at Shanghai acknowledging that there were icky parts of it for sure. Uh, and maybe icky is too glib. I mean, that there were parts of it that were, that were just wrong. Uh, but we can maybe learn from that. And if, even if we can't hope to get things right the next time, maybe we can get them better. You know, I, I think about this sometimes too, because I, I travel a lot around, you know, Asia, Southeast Asia, and you see, you know, some of the hotels, some of the, um, yeah, some of the hotels, some of the attractions you know, they, they advertise kind of, uh, you know, the, capture the glamour of, you know, the 1930s in Singapore or in, you know, Sri Lanka or in Hanoi. And I think, yeah, I mean, sure, that, that was, uh, it was a, probably a pretty cool time for somebody who looked in, a lot like me. Because I, I do think that there is a, a way in which the Chinese government, the Shanghai government today is trying to do kind of a little almost occidentalism. Um, they're trying to reverse the, reverse the gaze. Um, and so they want to keep some of the aesthetic um, and some of the qualities that made old Shanghai uh, the golden era. Um, they want to keep the things that looked nice. They want to keep the things that look kind of quintessentially colonial. Um, but they would like to do them over in a way that they can keep control of them. And I'm not sure ultimately if that is built on a foundation that's viable at all. I mean, Jeremiah, you're in, you're in Beijing. So, I mean, think of places like Chenmen, like does the fate of Chenmen give you confidence that the, that the ability to restore the past is going to be, uh, is going to be successful. Uh, and I'm afraid that Shanghai may meet that same fate. So um, I, I don't really have a clear answer for you, but I do think that Shanghai has this, it's stuck in this place where they, on the one hand, they know that what makes Shanghai unique and what makes Shanghai special has this sort of colonial element to it. And so how are we going to move forward and keep Shanghai special, but kind of inoculate ourselves against what had gone before. Um, and I think 
I think the jury's still out as to how how well that's going to how well it's going to work. But I do think it's going to be try to be in a way that kind of controls these colonial Western elements under a Chinese uh, under a Chinese political structure, which is ultimately why what distinguished what came before from what came after is it used to be run by foreigners and now it's run by Chinese. Now, I remember there was a lot of heavy breathing over. I can't remember the name of the restaurant. I think it may have even been a pizza place. But they put their address as French concession, and that got an ex- uh, they got a lot of pushback from people online uh, in Shanghai and around China. And I can I think that kind of plays into that. Yeah, I think so. As if as if people didn't know it didn't commonly refer to it as the French concession when they're in in Shanghai. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, sure, I get that. Thanks so much, Jay, for coming on the podcast. I know this is a busy time for you. This is the uh, you've you've been through a sort of a podcasting and webinar blitz the last few <laughs> the last uh, week anyway. So thanks for making time for us. Oh, I, I thank you so much for having me. For for me, one of the great uh, one of the things I really like I like I love to travel, um, which people think I'm crazy because I like air travel. But uh, I was definitely looking <laughs> forward to going around and and talking to to friends and colleagues mm-hmm. about the book. Um, so the fact that I can do it virtually, at least, is uh, is is really enjoyable. And in a time when there's so much so much bad stuff is going on in the world, it's it's great to take a moment out and and talk about something that I I'm I'm, I'm proud of. Yeah, so we really appreciate it. Champions Day, the end of old Shanghai. It looks at it at a uh, a well known era in history and gives some novel insights and. Uh, uh, a new understanding of it. I, th- I think if if you're for those of you who don't know much about the era in Shanghai, it, it actually makes a a very good uh, introductory uh, book to read because it 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 does t- tie in all the, uh, the the different threads of the narrative and the things and the geopolitical, pol- uh, racial and uh, economic aspects. But for those of you who know Shanghai and and live there, even it also is a delight to read because, as I said, it brings it ties together. Uh, lots of things that uh, you know we're not don't normally get talked about in the same chapter. So, thanks for writing it. It's really great. Um, I want to put a plug in for the LA Review of Books uh, for the the H. It's uh, the 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 URL is chinachannel.org where you can find Barbarians at the Gate podcast there um, and and past for past episodes and some future episodes coming up. All right. Thanks again, Jay. Uh, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And uh, let's bring you on again. You seem to be uh, one of those book-producing machines. I'm sure that in another two years, you'll have another book that we can... But even uh, for other issues, uh, it's always great to have you on. And uh, we, we, can't, we can't afford to give you a plane ticket to fly, but podcasting works just as well, so... Uh, anytime you have my number, as they say. Yeah. Well, thank you, folks, and join us again for another episode of Barbarians at the Gate.